Let's turn to the word of God, shall we? Shall we pray and ask the Lord to speak? Father, we come to your holy word and we ask now that your Holy Spirit would take hold of your holy word and apply it to our so often unholy hearts to make them more like the Lord Jesus. For we ask in his name. Amen. Right. Great chapter. There's a lot in it. Chapter 18, which we looked at, is probably one of the most dramatic vindications of the Lord's cause. Fire came down from heaven and consumed all that was on the altar. 400 prophets of Baal were destroyed. The Lord's power was demonstrated to all. And I think very importantly, God's prophet at that time, Elijah, was vindicated. But then we come to chapter 19. And in three short verses, the writer completely changes the flow of the story. Now, we've had it read to us, and I simply want to draw out three, what I believe are vital truths for us in this day and age. So let's look at them. First one is this. The godless are brazen in their antagonism to the things of God. The godless are brazen in their antagonism to the things of God. So, the fire fell, the prophets destroyed. Elijah, well, he probably went to his humble home, his lodging. And he sat and he was going to wait on the Lord. Ahab, the king, the wicked king, went to his palace. And in his palace was Jezebel, the queen. She must have been wondering all day long what has happened. I met a little boy here, perhaps two or three years of age, called Elijah. So I just gave him some advice. I said, whatever you do, when it comes to getting married, don't marry somebody called Jezebel. And I think he'll probably take that advice. But um, she, she, she was a wicked woman. Now, the miracle at Carmel, if we'd been there, we would have been totally stunned by what we'd seen. It sort of cowed Ahab, but it didn't convince him. And he was married to Jezebel, who was absolutely passionate in her idolatry. She stuck, she was obstinate in her error, in rejecting God and going for the prophets of Baal. She was as committed to Baal as Elijah was to the Lord. She was like, when she heard the news, she was like a tigress robbed of her cubs. She was livid, she was furious. She was a sort of personification of evil. And... You remember from chapter 18, we read that she'd already killed some of the Lord's prophets. Now, despite all the evidence for truth about God, Jezebel threatens Elijah's life. I think this is very important. Because there's something within us. We're so convinced of Christian truth. We just think if we can tell people the evidence. Explain, let's explain the evidence for the resurrection. All the fulfilled prophecies of the Bible. The evidence that the world has been designed by a designer, etc. If, if, if we can get this evidence across, they will be converted. We call it apologetics. Now, I'm not against apologetics. But let's not think that apologetics, convincing as it may be, will win people to the cause of Christ. There was a deep-seated antagonism in this wicked woman. And when we see it today... Let's not be surprised. As far as I can recall, every single British government since 1964 has legislated against the Ten Commandments. 
If there's one exception, I think it's probably Gordon Brown's, but we had other reasons for not particularly endearing ourselves, him endearing himself to, to us. But every government has passed laws which are directly against the Ten Commandments. And we're living in a society which has been impacted by these over the last 50 years. We know the name Richard Dawkins, and he seems to be mentioned in most Christian meetings these days, because he, he is huge in, the, in the, the sort of influence that he has. He's the sort of high priest of the BBC. And despite all the evidence and the scorn that he gets from other, um, other atheists, nevertheless, they parade him out, they quote him in the newspapers, etc. But I have to say, recently, he said something which I think, I, I, I just had to say, well, I agree with you entirely. He said we must stop teaching children fairy tales like from frogs to princes. I thought, well, that's what the theory of evolution is. Frogs to princes. So let's stop teaching that to children. I, I, I agree with them on that one. But we're living in this, this atmosphere where there is cynicism, where there's skepticism, where there's antagonism towards the things of God. And for those of us who have been Christians a number of years, we're sort of having to take on board something which is quite new to us. For the last 150 years or so in the UK, we've experienced a sort of benign acceptance of Christian values. In fact, Christians have sort of been treated with, with respect and courtesy, almost esteem. But all that has now changed. Things have become very different. And if you're one of those who works for the government, either local government or national governments, if you're an employee of the public services, whether in the NHS, the civil service, or in the teaching profession, you will know there is huge pressure coming down on you, bearing down on you to be silent, not to mention Jesus, not to mention God, not to pray with anybody, not to introduce them to the things of God, not to invite them to, to church. It's a new pressure, a new antagonism that's coming right down from the top. But it's nothing new. We mustn't be surprised. We read it time and again in, in, in the Bible, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah speaks to the people and he says, do you know, you're closing your ears to God. It's as if you're putting your fingers in your ears. You just do not want to hear him. Now, we can find this discouraging and disheartening. We can find it hurtful and painful. I keep reminding myself, this is the generation to which I've been called to minister. I may have chosen, if I'd got a choice, the Victorian era when things were you know, looking up, as it, as, as it were, for the, the, the cause of the gospel. But no, God didn't bring me into the world in the Victorian era. Some of you might think so, but he didn't. He brought me to minister to this generation, and it's one that is characterized by antagonism. Let's remember that the godless, godless people, and there are lots of them, are brazen in their antagonism. But let's not be surprised. But here's the second truth. And this is where it begins to touch on us in a deeper, personal way. The godly are passionate in their attitudes. Here is Elijah, this massive victory at Carmel, and then a few verses later we see him running. He's running, yes, because Elijah has sent one of her servants to go and say, right, the gods do so to me or more also if you are not dead by this time tomorrow. He runs not so much that he's scared of death, he's not. But he does not want to be put to death. 
by Jezebel, because that would appear to be a victory for Jezebel and the cause of Baal. And so he runs. He is a broken man, and we're going to examine this, because there are times in Christian experience, maybe more than the secular world is used to experiencing, there are times in Christian experience where we become broken people. Now, don't misunderstand, God is in control of all that's going on in our lives, but nevertheless, there are times when we look and we wonder and we think, has God somehow walked out of us? Has he left us? What is going on? Here is broken Elijah, not psychotic Elijah. I don't know that he's bipolar or manically depressed or anything like this, but nevertheless, he is a broken man. And like us, he was feeling a time, a period of deep weakness. Now, I love my emotions. There are times when, when life is very joyful, it's very colourful, it's very exciting. And you look forward and you think, oh, wow, all that there is ahead of me. But there are other times when emotions for me become almost my enemy. When they become painful. When they are a nuisance to all that I want to be. And my inner emotions become too sensitive to the outward conditions that I'm facing. There have been times in my experience where I've almost wanted to curse my emotions and not understand, not being able to understand what is going on. Now this is very real to me. I, if I can be very personal, I'll never forget the time when I pleaded with my GP who wanted to section me because she feared I would do something dreadful to myself. And I begged this GP, I said, please just give me till Tuesday and I promise I won't do anything to myself. Emotions are wonderful, but sometimes they're weird and very hard to take on board. We all face times of dejection, of defeat, of despair, and Elijah was just like us. He was a man of passion, as we heard Mike Lotz expound earlier today. He knew what it was to have scorn and contempt, but he knew what it was to receive scorn and contempt. He knew what it was to be angry, but he knew what it was to be the recipient of anger. He knew what it was to have great compassion that was rejected. He experienced sadness and dejection. He could preach fearlessly. He could pray passionately. And yet there were times of great sadness and melancholy. He had an assurance of God, and yet he turned to God and said, God, will you take my life from me? I say again, Elijah was not terrified of Jezebel but he was broken by the unrepentance, the lack of repentance that she and the nation showed towards God despite the fact that he clearly demonstrated who he was and his great power. This was the woman who was pulling the strings of Ahab the king. Basically, she had power to spread wickedness and it broke him. Now, physically, he was weary, and people have made a lot of this. He ran 18 miles, etc. He, he was tired. Not of the work, but in the work. He, he felt, I, I've just given everything. I've no more stamina, no more strength to give anything more. He felt this profound sense of disappointment. Do you ever feel like that? You go on a beach mission. Maybe 10, 15, 20, 25 of you work and pray and sacrifice for a whole week. You see everybody else stunning themselves, lazing around, buying their ice creams and the candy floss, and life seems so carefree for them. But we're working, we're praying, we're earnest, we're trying to get alongside people and win them to Christ. 
And are they interested? And at the end of the week, you think we gave all that energy and how little we seem to receive, how little we seem to reap despite all our sowing. Do you ever feel like that? I've tried and I've failed a million and one times to give my life to the cause of God and the cause of evangelism, but I have to say, I look back at all the years and I think that there's not even a drop in the ocean here. What has been accomplished? What has been achieved? And at times it hurts, not just for my own sake, but you think, what has happened to the kingdom of God, the glory of God, the name of God? And here is Elijah, hurting deeply. But he's going to unburden his soul to the Lord himself. Now, I'm not excusing him entirely. He made mistakes. If you look at verse 4 when he says, it is enough. He had no right really to say that. It's not for us to decide when is enough. It's not our decision, it's God's decision. But he just felt it. It's enough. I, 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 I can't give any more, I can't cope with any more. And then he felt he was all alone. It's easy to do that, isn't it? Oh, nobody else understands. Nobody else has the same vision, the passion for truth that I have. And I, I stand alone. Now, we've got to be careful when we feel like that. It can be self-righteousness. It can be narrowness. We're very easily judgmental as evangelicals. We're passionate for the truth. And sometimes we write off people because there's a disagreement on a minor, a secondary issue. It can sometimes be just faint-heartedness. But sometimes we feel alone. God's people are passionate in their attitudes. But I would beg us, don't be overwhelmed by emotions. The Lord's work is not a hobby. It's a back. Everything I have and am and are, everything I want to be and hope to be, I want to give to the Lord. It's not just something I tinker around with at the edges. I, 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 am, I am passionate about this. But sometimes that passion can get the better of me and do things to me that are not helpful. We've all been there, if we've been on the Christian life for a little while. I would urge us not to spend too much time self-analyzing. Once you start to analyze yourself, you think, oh dear me, that's, uh, maybe everybody else is normal after all. I thought it was the other way around, but actually perhaps everybody else is normal and I'm the one who's not. But God knows us. He never takes us through a period of great difficulty for too long. He keeps his eye on the clock. He sees how long we can endure it. He keeps his eye on the barometer. He knows how much pressure we can cope with. He keeps his eye on the thermometer. He knows how hot we can cope with. And through it all, the God of all grace gives grace. Do you know that hymn? He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Years ago on Beach Mission, sometimes we used to sing a, a song in the secret of his presence, how my soul delights to hide. Oh, how precious are the secrets which I learn at Jesus' side. And whatever battle is raging around us, and maybe getting very close to us, it is still possible to come into the very, very precious presence of God and bask in the overwhelming sense that he's here. And he's ministering to me. And we're going to see that's exactly what happened to Elijah. Antagonism, yes, don't be surprised. 
Passion in our attitudes, yes, but they'll be overwhelmed by them. And just one third truth. God is compassionate and caring in all his actions. If you are a Christian, if you've come to that definite, deliberate moment in your life where you've turned from your sin and you've asked Jesus Christ to become your Lord and Savior, if you are a Christian, listen, you belong to God. You're his child, his son, his daughter. You're in his hand. You're in his grip. You're the apple of his eye. He's never, never going to let you go. He's not going to turn his back on you. His thoughts constantly are towards you, even if yours aren't towards him. This is a caring, compassionate God, and especially to those who have trusted him. Here is Elijah. And oh, he's going through so much, so God sends the ravens to feed him. We thought about that earlier today. He sent this widow of Zarephath to provide for him. Now he has angels giving him food and drink. They were all his caterers, the very finest. And instead of taking his life, God sends bread and water to preserve him. Such is the kindness of God. And then God is going to use his word to minister to him in this moment of crisis. Let's see what happens. Overnight, he's in a cave. It's not something he's made, it's provided for him. He goes in this cave. And then he's told to go and stand before the Lord. And then there's an earthquake. And and, and fire. But don't expect to find God in the sort of explosions of nature. If you could, David Attenborough would have been converted. But you don't find God usually in the explosions of nature. You find him in his word. And then, like Moses, years before, and there are lots of similarities between Elijah and Moses, and of course they both appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. Like Moses, centuries before, the Lord passed by. And in my translation, a still, small voice. And God spoke. God doesn't normally speak through the spectacular. He may, but he doesn't normally. God doesn't normally speak through nature. He may, and it's lovely to go for, say, a prayer walk in beautiful countryside. But normally, the way God speaks is through his word. And he tenderly asks Elijah a question. Now, this isn't an interrogation. It's a question, because God's questions are the assurance that God himself is listening to us. He comes with a sympathetic heart to question Elijah. What are you doing here? And the question is like a key, which sort of opens up a great sluice gate, and suddenly out from the heart and the innermost being and the deepest emotions of Elijah comes gushing this full stream of, I have been very careful for your name, I've stood for you, I've lived for you, I've spoken for you, and this is what's happening to you. It all just pours out to the heart of God. Now, in his answer, he forgot that actually 
Jehovah had just vindicated himself and Elijah at Mount Carmel. He forgot that. He forgot about the 100 prophets who had been protected by Obadiah. He forgot that. And I have noticed, I know it from my own dreadful experience, I know that in times of pressure and brokenness, a time of despondency, we have a knack to, as it were, select, to pick certain quote-unquote facts that suit our case, but we forget the bigger picture. And this is what had happened to Elijah. We are a minority. Hey, it's great to have every one of us here at Kevin Lee, but it's not very many really <laughs> compared with even Newtown, or Powys, or Wales, or the UK. Or the UK and Scotland. We're very, very small compared, aren't we? We're, we're, we're a tiny minority. But it's always been that way. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, if you read his biography and it's worth reading, was involved towards the end of his life in what was called the downgrade controversy. No time now to go into it. It's fascinating. 2007 Baptist ministers voted on the issue of the downgrade controversy. Here was Spurgeon. A million people every Monday morning used to read his printed messages. When he was, when he was just 20 years of age, he had a congregation of 20,000. His word was incredible, and his sermons still all these years later are loved. But there was a vote on an issue which was dear to his heart, on whether they would stand for the truth or not. 2,000 of the 2,007 voted against him. Only seven pastors voted with him. Now we look back and think, oh wow, it's so clear that Spurgeon was right and they were wrong. That Spurgeon was in the tiniest of minorities and it broke him. Let's remember, we are just links in a chain. We go on a beach, we try to work with boys and girls and families, but oh, compared with the vastness of the beaches, not very many. We give our lives to working, say, in prisons, or in schools, or universities, or in church work, or what, but actually we touch very, very few. We are just a very tiny, tiny minority, and yet, this is God's work. And God is always a majority. One with him is certainly a majority. And God listens. And he comes to this broken man who asks that God would take his life. And as Michael said, Elijah wasn't even going to die. But interestingly, a number of people in the Bible ask that God would take their life. Moses prayed that. Job prayed that. Jeremiah prayed that. But actually, God had further work for them all to do. God didn't answer that particular, particular prayer, as we heard earlier. But instead of taking his life, do you know what God did? He, as it were, gave Elijah further work to do. He said, Elijah, I want you to go and anoint Hazael to be king of Syria. Oh, so God is Lord over a non-Israelite country? Yes, he is. And, and more than that, I want you to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. So, God, you're going to reestablish your rule over, over the northern kingdom? Yes, yes, I'm going to do that. And Elijah, I have a young man, Elisha, he's going to work with you. And Elisha felt he had no claim over Elisha's life. But nevertheless, Elisha came and worked with him and cheered Elijah's heart. But it's interesting, 
Elijah basically fades into the background for quite a while and comes back in 2 Kings, the beginning of 2 Kings. God is a compassionate and caring God in all his actions. So do not be unbelieving. God knows what he's doing. And the God who cares for you can cope with you. And whatever you're going through, the Lord God knows and he understands. And if your pain is felt because you feel I haven't been able to accomplish anything for the Lord, leave it with him. Leave it with him. God never wastes any pain. God never wastes any tears. In fact, we read in the Psalms that God takes our tears and puts them in his bottle. He keeps them, he records them. God never wastes any tears. God never wastes any toil. God never wastes any time. We are precious to him. And today, in a unique way, I don't know that we've ever spoken like this before at a UBM reunion, but things have changed even in the last 12 months, as we know. Today we find ourselves at the brunt of a new antagonism from godless people, from the Prime Minister downwards. We find ourselves the, the sort of shunned ones, the ones pushed to one side. And yet we are passionate for truth, but not just for truth. We want the Lord to be honoured and glorified. And we desperately want men and women not to be caught up with the tide of secularism. We want them to be caught up with God. And it hurts us. But God is caring and compassionate. Walk with him. Hear his voice. And you'll find he'll continue to send you on his errands. He will continue to do his work. And as he provides for you and protects you, and he will, he'll keep on using you until it's time for him to say to us, come home. Don't know that it would be quite as Elijah went home, but we can prove him through the valley of the shadow of death, because even there, he'll not leave us, but he'll take us to the place where he will be honoured. I look forward to heaven, I must say be caught up with the Lord Jesus for all eternity. This world is nothing compared with all that God is preparing for us. So let's focus on him and what he has for us and listen to his word and we'll find he'll recommission us even in the midst of the fire of antagonism. Amen.